Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. and welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to historical fiction author D.V. Bishop. His newest novel is Ritual of Fire. It's the third Cesare Aldo novel. We chat about how he plans books set hundreds of years ago, how he keeps the stories, the plots, the characters going across multiple books, how much he knows, how much he doesn't. Also, you can hear what his strict rules of writing are, and all about his method of plotting inspired by some iconic British characters. And so what I've learned to do over time is to have a rough shape, have a sense of trajectory, have a sense of where I'm going with the story, And then I, these days, I, I do what is, I call my Wallace and Gromit method to plotting. So anybody who hasn't seen it, in Wallace and Gromit, The Wrong Trousers, there's a lovely action sequence where Wallace is on a, a toy train and he's having to lay the track down in front of himself <laughs> as he's weaving through furniture in a big action sequence. And that's kind of how I plot. I just lay down enough track in front of me to get to the end of the day within the chronology of the story. There is more with D.V. Bishop in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along. Welcome back. It's Writer's Routine, where we take a look through an author's working day. My name is Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for being there. Happy New Year. I hope you've had a brilliant holiday season and you've got lots more books to stick on the to-be-read pile. Also, that you've got a busy 2024 ahead. How would you like to start this year? By helping to solve a murder. By giving it a try, at the very least. This episode of Writer's Routine is brought to you by the new true crime podcast, Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? And it puts you right in the heart of things. It's a brilliant new show which you can add to your feed if you love... Uh, writing, uh, crime writing, storytelling and podcasts. And because you listen to the show, I think that you might. I think you'll really enjoy this new show. It's Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? It's all about a 1983 murder now regarded as one of Scotland's most gruesome unsolved murders. And across five episodes told through a mixture of documentary and drama, this series goes into the very centre of a live investigation. A live investigation. It's going on and you can be part of it with interviews from the senior investigating officer, 
forensic scientists, psychologists, as well as family members and friends of the victim as well. The team behind this show have have really put the work in, brought it to life in such an incredibly creative way that puts you right there. It's a classic who's done it, really, a case that has baffled the police for over 40 years. And with the killer still on the run... In 2023, the police announced the biggest step forward in this case for the past four decades. It's such a brilliant twist on true crime podcasts, a way of slightly tweaking the wheel, a new spin on something that's been done, true crime podcasts. This approaches it from a very novel way. It puts you right in the heart of everything so you can try and uncover who is the cheese wire killer. Take a listen now. Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? It's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this show. Got a very special episode for you this week. It's a it's a bumper edition covering all aspects of historical fiction with DV Bishop. Now, many of the emails that you are kind enough to send to me over at writersroutine.com just infuse that you would love to hear more historical fiction writers. And well, I'll be honest, I'm not always able to live up to promises and every request, but I can deliver on this one. D.V. Bishop teaches creative writing and has published three Cesare Aldo novels set in Florence during the Renaissance period, so this is the 1500s. His first is City of Vengeance. The second, Darkest Sin, won the 2023 CWA Historical Dagger Award, a big prize for historical fiction. Uh, There is a fourth one out later this year. We're going all in on the third this time out it's ritual of fire set in florence during the summer 1538 where a night patrol finds a rich merchant hanged and set ablaze in the city's main piazza this is more than a mere murder it's a killing intended to put the fear of god into florence and cesare aldo needs to solve this one quick You can hear how he plans novels set hundreds of years ago, how true he is to the time, how annoyed he can be by spotting a fact error when the book has already been published too. Uh, Also, we run through how he started writing novels after a career in journalism, editing comics, and even working on tie-in fiction too, where you are writing for some of the biggest franchises around. You are in charge of what these most famous characters do. You can hear why he tries to not make his stories, like the TV show 24. Also, what his rules of writing are, how much he thinks about the language people used in the 1500s. It's a brilliant start to the new year, I think. Lots to take away. If 2024 is the year that you will finish that work in progress... Lots of advice here to help you out with D.V. Bishop. And we start the show, as we always do, chatting through what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I write uh, in a small upstairs room, which I think the people that owned the house before, it was a child's bedroom. Uh, So I'm up under the eaves. It was a small single room. And uh, yeah, my desk is pushed into the corner under the eaves. And to my left, uh, I can see out a window um, at the neighbours. It used to be a field there. Yes, I've lived here so long I can remember when it was fields. Um, And uh, there used to be sheep in it. And one time I saw a man with a scythe walking purposefully across the grass towards me, which was slightly disconcerting, Uh, but he was just there to cut the grass. Um, And then I'm just surrounded by uh, a printer, which I almost never use, and book cases absolutely laden with reference material about renaissance florence um and a load of rubbish as well 
so you've got the rubbish, you've got the reference books. I know that you are someone, well, because you listen to the show, you're someone that is interested in the process of writing. So uh, just talk us through how much that bleeds into your workspace. I mean, around you, do we have post-it notes? Is there like a whiteboard, anything like that that reminds you what you're on track to do? No, sadly. Uh, I used to have a big uh, whiteboard um, when I was planning. uh, I used to write for TV. I used to write uh, TV dramas for the BBC. Uh, So I used to use it more then when I was planning out a new spec script or building a new project. Um, But now what I do, my process is when I'm developing uh, a new book in my Cesare Aldo series, um, what I will do is I will figure out the shape of the story. I tend to write in five-act structure. So I'll figure out the rough shape of the story. I'll decide roughly over how many days the story is going to take place. They're historical thrillers, and for thrillers to work, really they need to be a a good ticking clock, a handful of days to tell the story, and I find works best, certainly for me. So I will figure out either the first day of the story, the actual date, in history when it started or the last day of the story that the story is going to conclude on and work backwards from there. And then I go away and do my research. I find out what was actually happening on those days, what had happened in the interceding months or years or weeks since the last Cesare Aldo novel, because I'm in the middle of a series. Um, and so I'll do the actual historical research and then I will do research into things which I think I'm going to need to know because I've built a a sense of the shape of the story and the themes and the locations where it's taking place. So whether it's entirely uh, confined in Florence, uh, in one of my novels, The Darkest Sin, that was almost entirely inside a a convent, a nunnery. Um, Most of the novels are mostly in Florence. Uh, The most recently published one, Ritual of Fire, is in Florence and out into the Tuscan countryside. And then I'm, I'll be starting work in January on the fifth book in the series, and that's going to take Aldo to Venice. So I'll need to do a lot more research into what Venice was like in the period where the book is set, which is uh, February, what we would call 1540. Um, so, yeah, so I will do all my research and go through all the, the many, many titles I've accumulated over the years and tease out all the necessary details I think I'm going to need. And then I effectively... Well, I don't cut and paste them, but I type them into a Word document so it's captured all in one place. So if I need to look up something, I don't need to go to the bookshelf and rifle through 200 titles. I've just got my, here's my guide document to what's happening on this particular day or where people are or uh, how long it takes to grow flax, which I thought was going to be important for one of my novels and proved to be entirely irrelevant. Um So, yeah, so I'll gather all the necessary useful research in advance and then I can write a draft. And as I get to the end of a book, then I go, okay, what don't I know? Is there something I need? I still need to go and research. So while I'm typing the draft, I will just put the word research in block capitals inside square brackets um, so that and then I can carry on writing. Um, so I don't stop myself by, God forbid, going on the internet to try and find something else because that's three hours of my life lost when I could be doing some typing. So I save those research things I still need to find out either for the end of the day or the end of the week or the end of the draft. And then I go back and fill in the gaps as required. I know that you, you teach and you, you listen to the show, as I mentioned. So you, you take in a lot of different 
uh, advice and tips about writing, you're interested in the craft. Where do you think for you that focus comes from? Well, it's a good question. Um, like a lot of writers, I was a voracious reader as a child and have continued to be so. Um, and my family didn't have a lot of money growing up, so uh, we couldn't afford to buy individual books. So either you went to the library and then my dad started making a little bit more money. So we used to buy what was called the Reader's Digest Condensed Books, which is not a thing I think you get in the UK, but it was big in the US. It was big in New Zealand where I grew up. And they would publish four popular novels in a condensed form. But the thing that always fascinated me was at the page at the back where they have the one paragraph bio of the author. So the authors, who they were, what they'd done, how they got their start. And so I've always been fascinated as much by writers as, as well as their stories. So I've always had an interest in the process of writing. And as soon as I was able to write, I started writing my own, what was effectively fan fiction. Although when you're seven, you don't really know that. Um, so I started wanting to be, wanting to write stories and tell stories and share stories. And so, you know, you can get a certain way with your influences, but then you discover there's more to learn about how stories are told. Um, and so I think, I mean, I, I was a daily newspaper journalist, and so there's a very particular way in journalism that you structure a story, particularly a, a print news story, most important thing at the top inverted pyramid so all the important stuff's at the top on the basis that anything gets cut gets cut from the bottom and people will turn on and do the next thing before they reach the end of your prose unless it's incredible um so i i've spent a lot of my life learning about how stories are told and trying to find different ways of telling stories and and sort of looking for the magic key that will unlock how to tell a particular story and the thing you discover of course is that there is no one magic key that unlocks every story. Almost every story you tell needs a different key. And often you only figure out the means to properly tell that story when you have written a complete draft. But it doesn't mean that you can't learn about the craft and learn about structure in particular. Um, and I think at a relatively young age, I went along to the um, Robert McKee story structure uh, weekend long workshop for screenwriters. I persuaded my uh, employers at the time who published uh, comics, particularly 2080 and Judge Strait comics, which I was editing, that I should go along to this because two of our uh, most acclaimed writers had been along to the McKee story structure weekend. And they said, well, most of it, you know, was just validating things that they'd already figured out by virtue of trial and error from 30 years of writing for comics and other media. But nonetheless, there were some useful things to be had in uh, what McKee had to say. So I went along to that. And after that, I started buying an awful lot of how-to books on structure um, because one of my aspirations was was to do screenwriting uh, as well as prose fiction. So, yeah, so I've spent an awful lot of time accumulating knowledge about different ways to tell stories. Yes. And then how consciously are you putting what you learn into practice? Is it a case where you sit down before every Cesare Aldo book at the moment and you say, okay, hmm, what have I heard this time? What have I read right now? Uh, what can I do to try and make this better? Or is it more a slow burning, almost tuition by osmosis? I think it's, well, in terms of how I'm going to tell the story, 
I'm, I've just written the fourth book in the series. And what I've discovered along the way of writing the series is that 5X structure tends to work quite well because I'm writing historical thrillers. Therefore, you need a sense of escalation. You need a ticking clock. You need uh, reversals and turning points. And the more acts you add to a structure, the easier it is to factor those things into the storytelling. Um, you know, it's why something like an Indiana Jones film tends to be seven X structure because it's going for that Saturday morning serial cliffhanger escalation. Things get worse. Oh my God, they've gotten worse again. Um, so I am thinking about that when I'm writing uh, the older novels, but it's sort of, it's at the back of my head. One thing I've learned is if I try and slavishly adhere to a particular structure or a particular formula of how you tell stories, so, you know, like Mickey's story or Save the Cat writes the novel or, you know, 20, uh, 22 steps or eight structures or sequences, all these other methodologies, the problem with all of them is that they are formula. And if you too closely follow a formula, I tend to believe you'll end up with formulaic storytelling. And so what I've learned to do over time is to have a rough shape, have a sense of trajectory, have a sense of where I'm going with the story. And then I, these days I, I do what is, I call my Wallace and Gromit method to plotting. So anybody who hasn't seen it, in Wallace and Gromit, The Wrong Trousers, there's a lovely action sequence where Wallace is on a, a toy train and he's having to lay the track down in front of himself <laughs> as he's weaving through furniture in a big action sequence. And that's kind of how I plot. I just lay down enough track in front of me to get to the end of the day within the chronology of the story. And then when I get to the end of the day, I will pause. I will review everything I've written up to that point I will make notes uh, specifically about um, what the characters know because there's an element of mystery and, and uh, murders and who done it. So there's a puzzle to be solved. So what the characters know, uh, what the characters feel. So where is their emotional state? Where are they on their emotional journey through the narrative? And therefore, what would each character logically do next? If I was that character, I knew this, I feel this, what am I going to do next? Now, I'm angry about something, am I going to go and pick a fight or start an argument or, or overreact in a situation? If I'm afraid of something, how am I going to respond? I would respond differently to that than if I was feeling emboldened, for example. So... I let my characters be my guide as the story progresses. There will be key moments I know need to happen, but essentially I lay out enough plot theoretically to get me to the end of the day, and then I see what happens. So there's a lot of improvisation. So I let myself improvise, and you are, you're writing, you're making stuff up. So I let myself have fun with that in the full and frank knowledge that it's a first draft, and at the end of that day I can go back and make notes about what will need fixing and tidying up there's a cumulative element to it that makes it a lot easier for you because you if you know your characters then you you'll have a sense of how they're going to respond and react um i mean i have two main characters in my series i've cesare aldo who is he's uh, he's a, a slow reveal protagonist effectively he's you know he's like a parfait or an onion he's got layers <laughs> and so we the readers and me the writer are discovering more about Aldo as the series progresses, why he is the way he is, why he responds 
to situations as the way he does, why he believes in justice far more than he does in enforcing the law, for example, what his attitudes are to sexuality or gender or wealth or um, anything else like that, or poverty. Um, but the readers are discovering more about Aldo, why he is the way he is. Aldo is not fundamentally changing over the course of the series. So he's he's an agent of change protagonist in a lot of ways in that Aldo doesn't fundamentally change, but he's the hand grenade that gets rolled into a situation. He's Clint Eastwood riding in on the horse, if you will. So he will turn up and he will impact other people around him. But equally, we, the readers, are finding out more about him as the story progresses. And as a consequence, our attitude to him as a character evolves. So although Aldo is not fundamentally changing, our perception of him changes, both for me as the writer and hopefully for the readers. And then alongside him, there's a character who started off as Aldo's sidekick, effectively a constable called Carlos Strocchi. Um, and in the first book, he's a relatively naive, he's a son of a friendly Tuscan village who's come to Florence and he's working as a constable for the most feared criminal court in the city, the Otto. Um, but he's got a very black and white view of the world as the series begins in the first book, City of Vengeance. So he sees everything in absolutes, and not he's not absolutist in a negative way. He's simply, he believes everything he's been told and how he's been brought up, uh, you know, in the church and his faith and everything. And the longer he spends in Florence and the more time he spends working alongside Aldo or working for the Otto, he is becoming increasingly more Florentine rather than, you know, a nice boy from the countryside and innocent from the village. He's no longer the ingenue. He's, uh, as the series progresses, he gets married, he becomes a father. And all of these things are challenging his belief system. And he's realizing the world is a far more morally complex uh, situation than you know, the you're good or you're evil, you're good or you're bad, and there's nothing in between. Strocky has come to realize that the world is a lot more complicated than he was brought up to believe. And if he's going to progress and survive in Florence in the job that he has and be able to look after his family, he's going to need to be far more compromised or compromising in his approach to things. So he's becoming more flexible, whereas Aldo, we're just finding him out out more about him as we go along. You mentioned characters being like an onion. How much do you know of those different layers, or, or rather, do you recall knowing about them before, when you had the very first idea for the the first novel? So, when uh, we'll get more into this in a second, but when you were thinking of Cesare Aldo as a character, did did you know all these layers there, and you yourself as a writer are waiting for the perfect time to peel back and reveal? Or is it coming to you as you're going? You're learning more about him yourself. It's a bit of both, if I'm honest. Um, I mean, I spent 20 years not writing the first book in the series, City of Vengeance, uh, because I felt I had to know everything about the period I was writing in, about Renaissance Florence in the 1530s. Um, and eventually I realized it was impossible to know everything. Uh, there weren't complete records, and even if there were complete records, I can't read or speak Italians, and certainly not as written 500 years ago. So I realized I had to let go of the perfectionist tendency of wanting to know everything before I could start writing. I would have to start writing and figuring out, figure out then what I didn't know. But as I was doing that research and developing the idea over this long period of time, while well, I was writing other things and getting better at writing as well, frankly, 
um, Aldo, the character, was developing. And I knew I wanted him to be somebody who could move through different layers of society. So he would be comfortable in the grungiest, grottiest, dodgiest tavern in Florence. And yet he would be perfectly comfortable, you know, with courtly intrigues and talking to dukes and uh, ambassadors and arts, archbishops. And, you know, he would be somebody who had had an education. He had his letters. He could read. He could write. Um, he could speak in the f- Tuscan dialect and others as well. And I wanted him to be somebody who could hold his own in a fight. Um so I built up a backstory for him as a character that got me to the start of the writing of City of Vengeance. Um, so I knew that he had been the illegitimate son of a rich merchant. He'd been brought up as a member of the family until his father died when Aldo was 12, and then Aldo was kicked out of the house within an hour of his father's death by his evil stepmother, Lagrizia, and then he survived on the streets uh, and then became uh, a man at arms, a, a mercenary. They didn't have standing armies. You paid people to go and fight your wars for you. So he would be a mercenary, which is where his skills with a, with a stiletto and, and then combat come from. And then he returned to Florence and became uh, a lawman, a law enforcer, an investigator for this feared criminal court. So I knew the basics of it. But as the series has progressed, I've discovered more alongside the readers at the same time. Um, so it's a journey of discovery for me as well as it is for the readers. I'm always a few steps ahead of the readers because I'm figuring of, of things out, obviously, what's going to happen in book five, which I'm writing next year, for example. Aldo's going to Venice. Um, and uh, Aldo has sworn he will never go back to Venice. And also Aldo can't swim, which is going to be a problem if he goes into a canal. Um, so it's... But the reason why Aldo was sworn he's never gone back to Venice um, is only just occurred to me in the last couple of days, actually, as we're speaking. So I'm discovering things as I go along and I'm figuring things out as I need to know them. And I'm trusting to the fact that, you know, uh, answers will emerge as I progress. Uh, Writing in a series... I imagine there must be a, a slight contrast, or maybe it's incredibly helpful that you know that you need to write book five, um, but maybe some ideas of book six and maybe even book seven or whatever's coming later are popping up to you. How much do you find a wrestle between knowing what's happening much later and having to park that and, and drip feed certain elements of it through what you're writing now without giving too much away and without completely wrecking your future plans? Yeah, it's tricky sometimes. I, I, I end up in debate with my editor, the wonderful Alex Saunders at, at Pam McMillan, because at the, after I'd handed in book one and we'd signed the contract, and he was very eager. There's a particular character called uh, Ruggiero, and he was like, oh, I really want Ruggiero to get his comeuppance in this book. Can we not change the ending? And I was like, no, I'm sorry, Alex. Uh, whatever's going to happen to Ruggiero is going to happen in book three of the series. And I don't need signed a two book contract. So that was me just being mean, frankly. Uh, but I did have a plan for what was going to happen to this particular character. And it was going to come at the, the back end of book three, Ritual of Fire. And equally, there are times where I introduce characters. So book two, uh, The Darkest Sin, we get to meet, uh, Aldo's estranged family, his stepsister, his stepniece, his evil stepmother, Lucrezia, makes her first proper appearance on the page. Um, and I really wanted to have them in book four. I, my plan was to bring Aldo's family back in in book four. 
But when I was writing book four, there was there was just no room at the end. Basically, I was I was writing again, and I got twenty thousand words into the draft of of book four, a uh, Divine Fury, and and just went. I had to email Alex, my editor, and just say, "I'm really sorry, but we're not going to see Isabella. We're not going to see Lucrezia or Teresa. That there's just no room for them in this book. And if I try and wedge them into the book as, I guess, fan service, if you will, and it's worst case scenario." it's going to slow the pace of the book down and it's going to get in the way of the story that I'm telling. And, and you have to be true to the story you're telling. You have to dance with the one that brung you. So I just, I just emailed Alex and said, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to punt this, this subplot and that's going to have to be in book five. Um, so there are times where I'm, I would love to have something happen in a particular book, but if it doesn't fit the book and it doesn't fit the story I'm telling, it's not going to fit, you know, elegantly into the shape of the story I want to present, then you just have to go, I'm sorry, this is just going to have to wait, which is is frustrating sometimes. But equally, it's nice to know I've got this, the joy of a series is you start to build an ensemble of characters that you can pull pull on to the stage when you want them. They're available to you there. But it doesn't mean they all have to appear in every book because otherwise you're just throwing people onto the page for the sake of it. I teach four days a week. I run the creative writing programs at Edinburgh Napier University in Scotland. So I'm teaching Tuesday through Friday. Uh, so on a teaching day, if I'm drafting the book, uh, I will get up often at 5.30. It used to be I had to set my alarm. Now my brain will just wake me up and say, oh, had you thought about this? Or you need to go back and fix that. So my brain will do the alarming for me now. Um, so I will get up at 5.30 And I will, the goal on a teaching day is to try and get 500 words if I can. Uh, I will start by reviewing what I wrote the previous day. I will do a little light polishing and editing on that as a means to try and and smooth my way back into um, the new material I'm going to write, to get myself back into the, the scene, back into the flow of the narrative, back into the heads of the characters, whoever's viewpoint is I'm using. So I will try and write 500 words on a teaching day. But if I only manage 200 words, it's not the end of the world. If I end up actually with minus 50 words because in my editing process, I cut a whole scene and I only added 50 words. So I've ended up with a deficit. It's not the end of the world. Um, I try not to be uh, a slave to word counts if possible. So on a teaching day, the goal is about 500 words. And therefore, over the four teaching days, the goal is to try and get 2,000 words. doesn't always work. Uh, there's, you know, other things going on. And then if I'm teaching, then it's, you know, start either teaching online or drive to Edinburgh, which is an hour away for me, and then go in and teach the day and then come home. And experience has shown me that after I've spent a day teaching, and because it's creative writing, so I'm working with students and their stories and structures and all the rest, there is nothing left in the bank at the end of the day I gave at the office is the way it goes. So those four days, the goal is 2,000 words. If I manage it, great. If I don't, it's not the end of the world. And then Saturday, Sunday, Monday, my goal is usually try and get anything up to another three to 4,000 words, depending upon how the book is going. I usually try and aim for 100 to 120,000 words first draft, and the goal is to get that complete in six months. Um, and it's a pretty tidy first draft as well. It will be in pretty good shape. 
Um, not perfect, of course. And then after I've done that, I'll do a cut and polish once I've got to the end of the draft. But I try and actually do a cut and polish at the end of each story day, if you will, in the chronology of the narrative, if I have time. Um, so, yeah, so on a non-teaching day, so Saturday, Sunday, Monday, I'll be trying to get anywhere between 1,000 and 1,600 words. Um, and for those, then it's either I will try and start at 9 o'clock in the morning if it's a Monday, so it's a business day, if you will. Um, but if it's Saturday and a Sunday, it tends to be writing in the afternoons and if need be into the evening. Um, but, yeah, the goal is always to try and get however many words I need that week four, five, six thousand words by the end of whenever I knock off on the Monday. That's the goal. Um, and sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And equally, I try and give myself uh, the freedom to say, you know, if you're going to, uh, oh, I don't know. So I went to Bay Tales, a wonderful crime fiction festival in Whitley Bay in March. Well, that was the whole weekend gone. Effectively, I wasn't going to be getting any writing done that weekend because you're busy, you know promoting the book and, and talking to other writers and meeting readers and doing all those things. That's part and parcel of the job of being a crime writer these days. So, I, yeah, so I give myself, you know, enough flexibility to say, you don't beat yourself up if you don't manage your target every day. I've been to crime festivals where uh, authors have, you know, taken themselves away after some of the sessions before what else is going on to try and get 500 or so words done. And I always feel like that might light the competitive fire in me. <laughs> if, if I knew that other people were doing that, I, I might feel like well, I, I need to go and do that as well. But I guess there, there is a certain charm in if everyone's if there's this tacit agreement between crime writers at a festival that we're all downing tools, that maybe they're not getting ahead of you. But I know that it's not a competition. Do, do you understand that at all? Oh, completely. Um, I, I used to write a lot more and a lot faster. So I used to write tie-in novels. So I wrote Doctor Who novels and Judge Street novels. I read a Freddy Krueger novel. Um, and when I was writing those, I would be writing uh, 20,000 words a week. And I, I was writing full-time then. I wasn't teaching. Um, but I would write 20,000 words a week. So the goal was 4,000 words a day five days a week and I'd give myself the weekend off if possible. And if it wasn't going well, then I would write at the weekend as well. I think my extreme version was drive-by writing. I was sat in a car waiting for my partner to come out of a meeting on a Saturday afternoon. So I got the laptop out and wrote 1,500 words while sat in the passenger seat of the <laughs> car because I was so up against it on deadline for that particular that particular book. Um, so I discovered I had a capacity. If I had a, when I was writing tie-ins for a tie-in book, so licensed tie-ins where it's somebody else's intellectual property, their IP, where it's Doctor Who with the BBC or whatever it might be. Um, in order to get the contract, to get the job, you have to provide a full-length synopsis of the entire story of everything that's going to happen. And they largely expect you to follow that. Um, so therefore, in terms of plotting and structuring, I'd done all the heavy lifting in advance. And then when it came time to write the novel, really it was sort of like add dialogue and description for the most part because the plot was taken care of. I didn't have to worry about what was going to happen next. I knew what was going to happen next. Um, so that was a particular kind of writing, but it, it did enable me to write very fast when the time came to start drafting. So I could knock off an 80,000-word draft in a month 
or a hundred and hundred thousand word, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street novel that was six weeks work, I think, because I had a good detailed synopsis and you just blast it out and then tidy it up. And that was fit for purpose. But when I wanted, when I was going to start writing my own novel, I didn't want to be writing work that was just fit for purpose. My goal was always to try and push myself to write the best novel I possibly could. Now, I'm very aware of the fact that my strengths as a writer is I write page turners. I'm not going to win any literary awards. Um, I once had an editor who told me that I had no poetry in my soul, which was a little harsh, I have to say, but I sort of went, well, okay, I can live with that. Um, so I will write things that I'm, you know, proud of writing, of course. Um, and that's always the goal, but equally, uh, I think one of my jobs as a writer of page turners is to get out of the way of the, the reader is to let them get as close as possible to the characters and the story and what people are feeling and have direct empathy from the reader to the characters while engaging them with the intellectual puzzle of what's happening in the story, rather than me wandering onto the page and waving my hand around and saying, look at this gorgeous prose I've written, aren't I a marvel? <laughs> uh, that's, a, I can't write gorgeous prose. Um, uh, so, so really, my goal is 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 good, efficient page turners that you know immerse you in the story and the setting and make you care about the characters, um, and then you know tell a good story at the same time. I have so many questions about tie-in novels. So I remember I used to read a lot of the Doctor Who ones at a time, um, oh. and I remember wondering. Like, I, 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 do the authors care as much? I mean, you know, you, you're, you, you it's got to be good because yeah. you, you got to pay rent. You want to do it again. Yeah. But how much, I always wondered how much they were caring as opposed to maybe an idea and the characters that came from their own head. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's different. I mean, because so much of it is handed to you. I mean, Doctor Who, it's, it's a great flexible format that can take you the characters anywhere in any place. And therefore you're building entire worlds from scratch effectively, if you want to. Um, and the only thing that gets you there is the TARDIS, which is only in it for the first five pages and the doctor and the companion. And then everything else is your own creation often. Um, I mean, it's, it does come with a big red reset button tie in fiction and that you have to hand it back intact it's like you're borrowing a, a vintage sports car. Somebody's giving you a Aston Martin DB1 and you get to take it out for a drive for six months, but you have to hand it back in pristine condition. So you get to play with these incredible toys and tell these amazing stories and all these things. And you get to commune with these characters. You may well have loved your entire life. Um, uh, but then you do have to give it back at the end. It's not yours. You don't own it. Whereas where they're your characters, you decide absolutely everything. And there's, you know, if somebody buys a Doctor Who novel, they buy it because they like Doctor Who. They don't buy it because it's a David Bishop or a D.V. Bishop novel. Whereas if somebody buys a D.V. Bishop Cesare Aldo novel, it's because they like my writing or they like my characters or they've heard it's good. In which case, yes, they would love to have um, try it out for themselves and then hopefully they'll buy the next one. So all the responsibility falls on you. There's no hiding place. Um when you're writing your own characters. Uh, but that's the joy of it as well. You get to do whatever you want with it um, and then see what happens as a consequence. So it's swings and roundabouts. Teaching creative writing. I know you mentioned it can be creatively exhausting. Mm. On the other side of the ledger, though, sharing ideas, being around 
yeah, uh, very fresh and green writers who are having perhaps ideas that you would never have that are doing things in a different way simply because they've not really learned the form. Uh, how how much of a benefit is that and how inspirational is that to you as a writer now? I mean, it's energizing. It's absolutely energizing. The other thing I would say is that if you have to teach creative writing, it forces you to intellectualize and not in a, in a sort of negative snobby way but it makes you think about what you do by instinct. Mm. So it's the, the principle, a lot of writers, particularly once you've written more than one novel, will be, uh, they achieve a level of uh, unconscious competency. Through trial and error, you learn what to do, but you can't really explain what it is you just know effectively because you've done it so many times before, therefore you know how this works. You know, you learn to recognize your own methodologies, your own weaknesses, your strengths, and you will play to your strengths, generally speaking. If you teach creative writing, it forces you to become consciously competent. So it makes you think about how things work and because you have to explain it to somebody else. You have to explain it to somebody in a way that they can grasp and understand and provide examples. So it makes you think through your methodology and question your methodology. Um, and as a consequence of that, uh, it's definitely made me a better writer, absolutely made me a better writer from teaching um, because it has m made me step back and think, why do I do this? What else could I do? What are the other possibilities of this? Um, and it's um, completely made me recognize my, my strengths. One of the things that we talk about a lot on our program is purpose. Why are you telling the story? Not just what is the plot or what are the themes or thematic arguments you want to make, but what is it that you want to challenge or subvert? What is it that you're trying to do with genre or form that's going to be different? What are you going to do as a writer that's distinctive? To, what is the story you're going to tell that only you could tell it or you only you could tell it in this particular way? So that's at the core of our program is that thinking about purpose. And the other thing is our program is one of the rare creative writer programs that focuses on uh, popular genre fiction. So we do crime fiction and uh, fantasy and science fiction and horror and historical, and we also look at writing for, for young adult readers. And most of those genres, most creative writing programs in North America and in, in Britain won't touch with a barge pole. You know, they would generally expect, you know, it's more likely to be more literary fiction, more experimental fiction, although plenty of experimental writers come on our program, and, and poetry as well. And... So we're one of the rare programs where people can actually come because they want to write pirates or they want to write witches or they want to write I know, people being stabbed in a dark alley 500 years in the past. Um, but just because they want to write popular fiction doesn't mean there shouldn't be a sense of rigor and um, – you know, a thought put into the work that they're trying to do. You know, I don't believe popular genre fiction is lowest common denominator writing by any stretch of the imagination. There's some amazing writers who write popular genres. Um, I think it's Val McDermott possibly who says, if you want to know about a society, read that society's crime fiction because crime writers particularly will dig into all the things that are wrong with a time or a place and put them on the page in front of you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Someone out there knows who did it. There's people out there just keeping quiet. Not telling us what they know. My expectation would be somebody out there knows something. That somebody would know about it other than just the colour. I firmly believe someone out there knows who did it. Somebody would know about it. Somebody knows who did it. Somebody out there knows something. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the Fool series now wherever you get your podcasts. Who is the Cheese Wire Killer is available right now wherever you get your shows. A tremendous listen. If you like crime fiction and podcasts, and well, you're listening to the show, so I imagine that you do, uh, do take a listen. Available now wherever you get your shows. Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? They are sponsoring the show this week. If you'd like to support the show and even sponsor the podcast, well, you can by becoming a backer at patreon.com forward slash writers routine over there we've got a writing community where we share ideas and book recommendations you can check out my book review videos uh, more coming up through 2024 lots planned if you would like to see this show carry on and bring you the best authors around as often as possible from all different genres uh, the best way that you can make that happen is by supporting us patreon.com forward slash writers routine for that you get merch there is bonus content there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show it doesn't require a lot Anything that you can send over goes an extraordinarily long way. I really appreciate whatever you can pledge over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with D.V. Bishop chatting through his newest novel, Ritual of Fire. It's the third in the Cesare Aldo novels, heading back to 1538 to Florence, where a unique brutal murder demands the skills of Cesare Aldo. We run through how much he stays true to the actual events of the time that he's writing about. Also, how he overcomes the challenge of using language that people used 500 years ago. And we jump back in chatting about Ritual of Fire and where the first idea for the novel came from. The novel takes place 40 years after the execution of a man called uh, Savonarola, who's fairly notorious in history. He was a monk and his religious fervor and the power of his rhetoric was such that at one stage he would have uh, Florence at this point in the Renaissance had about a population of 60,000 people, 30,000 people, half the city would crowd into the big cathedral, the Duomo to hear him speak. Such was, you know, he was a, you know, an old fashioned populist hellfire and brimstone kind of preacher. And, People absolutely were lapping it up at this point in history. And so it got to the point in the late 15th century, in the 1490s, 
that effectively he was almost running Florence for about an 18-month period. Um, and then he overstepped the mark. Um, sorry, while he was still running Florence, he, he had these teenage boys, what we would now call teenage boys, who used to go out and bang on the doors of citizens and demand they hand over their vanities, which was anything that wasn't sacred. So that was uh, wigs, makeup, fancy dresses, uh, non-sacred music, texts, books, artworks, anything really. And these had to be handed over to these boys banging on the doors demanding them. And then they made a giant pyramid of them in the main piazza of Florence. And they burned them. And this became known as the Bonfire of the Vanities. Happened in February uh, 1497, when Savonarola's control over the city was at its height. Um, but within 18 months of that, he had overstepped the mark. Uh, he had been excommunicated by the Pope. And uh, he was found guilty of various charges by uh, the Alto, the main criminal court of Florence, and was sentenced to die. And they brought him and two other monks out into the main piazza where they'd had the Bonfire of the Vanities the previous year. And the three of them were hung and their bodies set fire to. And the reason why they burned the bodies while they were still hanging from the, the gibbet is they didn't want any bits of a Savonarola left behind so he could become a holy relic because in case people tried to make a martyr out of him. So they swept his ashes up and they threw them into the River Arno uh, later the same day. So that's the backstory of the, what <laughs> happened in the past. 40 years to the day later, uh, a man is tied to a gibbet atop a car. He's wheeled out into that main piazza as dawn breaks over Florence and he is uh, burned alive. And that is the beginning of Ritual of Fire um, in that my two detective characters, Cesare Aldo and uh, Carlo Strocchi, um, have to investigate why rich mer merchants of the city are being burned alive in a very public ritualized fashion, hence the title Ritual of Fire. Now, in the book, Aldo starts the story. He's actually in exile out in the Tuscan countryside. He's living in the Tuscan countryside a few miles outside Florence where he's sort of enforcing the law uh, out amongst the villagers and the farmers. Um and Strocchi is investigating the case that's happening in Florence, and inevitably the two of them end up having to work together to try and figure out what's going on, who's behind these ritual killings, and what is leading it to happen. And the other thing that is going on during this is somebody is posting public notices up around Florence saying that the spirit of Savonarola has mm. risen from the grave and he's going to transform Florence into a new city of God, a new Jerusalem, if you will. Um, and therefore, all the sinners of Florence, the gamblers and those who see prostitutes and those who drink too much are all going to be made to suffer. So it causes this religious fervor rises up in the city and hundreds and thousands of people start protesting on the streets and demanding uh, for the deposing of the Duke of Florence, Cosimo de' Medici. So that's that's what happens in the story. You mentioned the, 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 almost the process of d ha coming up with a story, as, as in you you, not, you pick a, a week, is it, or like three days of four days of history that you want to focus on? Yeah, absolutely. I, I will choose, either I will choose the first day of the story and then events flow on from there, or I choose the last day of the story and events lead up to there. So Ritual of Fire opens on the 40th anniversary of the, the execution of Savonarola, which is May 28th, uh, 1538 in the book. 
Um, so, and then events flowed on from there over how many days uh, they took. Whereas the the next book in the series, which I'm I'm just about to get my copy at, it's back from the publisher Pam McMillan. Um, I knew that it ended on uh, All Souls Day, which is the second of November, and so I was writing towards that final day. Um, but yeah, so usually it's I have a start date or I have an end date in real history when events are going to flow. What draws you to that date? You, you've got you, you've given yourself this. This brilliant opportunity within a time frame where you can explore historical events that happened and, and put your own spin on the world around it at that time. What what draws you to very spe- specific events and makes you decide uh, this would be a, a ripe setting for an Aldo novel? Well, for the first four books in the series, each one is set during a different season of the year. So the first one, City of Vengeance, was in winter. And it starts on what we would call uh, New Year's Eve, effectively, and then flows into the new year. So it covers about 11 days, which was when there was an actual plot to overthrow the Duke of Florence. Um, so that sort of dictated that. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if each book progressively moved on through the seasons? So the second one, The Darkest Sin, is at the start of spring in uh, March. Uh, Ritual of Fire, it starts at the end of May, and there's a heat wave and a drought which actually there was in Florence in 1538. There was in the whole of Tuscany, there was a massive problem with drought and that was they were faring it was going to lead to famine. It was things that emerged in my research. And I wanted there to be a heat wave to go along with the fact that there were these people being burned alive and everybody was getting driven crazy by the heat, which helps to explain the sort of the mania that takes hold of the city. Uh, and then the fourth book in the series, um, A Divine Fury, is set in autumn. And so uh, uh, it rains a lot as a consequence. They have winter, but they don't really have winter as we would deem it. There's not a lot of snow falls and falls in Florence, let's put it that way. So, yeah, it was the, the first four books in the series I wanted to be like the sort of the, season, the Four Seasons Quartet, which is a little bit grand, but it was an idea in the back of my head. And I thought, well, that will be – it helps to give a shape to the story and to what's happening with the characters. In that sense, are you slightly limited by events because you know you, you need something maybe that happens in the autumn of a particular year? A little bit, yes. It was a case of when I decided on autumn and I thought, oh, it would be great if it finished on, on All Souls Day. So you have what we would now call Halloween, uh, All Hallows' Eve, which is October 31st. And then in the Catholic calendar, then November the 1st is All Saints' Day. And then November the 2nd is All Souls Day. There's two feast days back to back. Um, and so I wanted, in my original vision mm. for, for a Divine Fury, it was going to start with Aldo chasing a suspect through a graveyard at night and there was going to be this confrontation. I was, oh, this is going to be great. And then the book was going to finish uh, with a confrontation in a graveyard as sort of the mist swirls uh, during All Souls Day. And then when I did my research, I discovered they didn't actually have graveyards <laughs> uh, at this point in history. Um, not as we, you know, as you see them today. If you go to Florence or in any local town, and there will be a graveyard and there's burials and da da da, all the rest. But they didn't really have it at this point in history. If you were of sufficient wealth and status, then you would have a burial crypt, often underneath the church where you went and worshipped. Um, 
And then there might be a very small graveyard just outside the church, but that was unusual because space was at a bit of a premium. And so uh, they did have sort of the equivalent of like um, a like a graveyard, but a, a small field attached to a church where they would just open up a different hole each day and put the day's bodies into it and then close it up again and then move on to the next hole for the next day. So there's an awful lot of unmarked graves at this point in history, but there weren't graveyards as we know them. When I started doing my research and I talked to a couple of historians and discovered, no, they didn't really have graveyards. So, yes, my grand vision for the start and the finish of book four, that went flying out the window. And that's the joy of historical research. Well, let's talk about this research. You've already mentioned that you like to get quite a bit prepared uh, before time. I remember you describing your your work set up and everything around you with the research. When you focused on a period and on a date, on an event, what's your brain thinking? What questions are you asking that lead you to research in certain parts of a library and online? Yeah. So it's so the date is obviously hugely helpful because then I, there's a Medici online archive where you can see uh, letters or transcriptions of letters written to the Duke and from the Duke and about the Duke and other prominent people in the city. So you can go into specific dates and go, right, so what was happening at this point in history? Um, you know, is, is Eldo, has he married yet? Uh, sorry, not Eldo, has uh, Duke Cosimo, has he married which he does uh, between book three and book four in this case. Um, is his new wife pregnant? Is the baby born yet? What's going to happen about that? So I will I will look into specific things to do with the date and what is happening with political machinations and who's in charge of what and who's doing what to whom in history at that point, what the important people are doing. And then I'll look past that and say, okay, so what was life like for a normal person, for an average working person at that point in history? So, for instance, was there a drought as there was in the summer of uh, 1538? And what impact would that have on life and the cost of things at markets? So it's trying to think about the big famous stuff, the people that get mentioned in history books and then what was happening to normal people. And then other things that might be relevant. So the the next book I'm going to be writing is going to send Aldo to Venice. So for that, I've decided he's going to end up in Venice in the run-up to Carnival, which is the, the days immediately before the beginning of Lent, which is six weeks of abstinence in the Catholic calendar that starts in February, you know, Shrove Tuesday, Ash Wednesday, that sort of thing. So he's going to end up in Venice during Carnival when there's going to be a lot of everybody wearing masks and there's a lot of deception and you can't tell who's who, which is going to be helpful for the kind of story book five will be, which is sort of espionage, spy, thriller mode. How much does your research impact the plot and how much is it the other way round? So we're talking about... The that famous that famous problem with historical fiction in creative license which we'll get a bit more into in a second but when you're when you're doing your research you're, you're how much are you coming across oh interesting things this happened here as you just mentioned this happened then i can talk about that and how much is it well you want cesare aldo to to be doing something around here what can i research to make that happen yeah i mean it's, it's the eternal question i mean i when I was writing the first book in the series, City of Vengeance, I, I, was, I sat down and watched uh, Hilary Mantel did a series of five lectures, the Rita lectures they're mm. called for the BBC, 
And it, I think it's lecture number four. She talks about writing historical fiction and the attitude she had taken when she was working on Wolf Hall and and Bring Up the Bodies, etc. Um, and she says that, you know, historical fiction writers, her advice is don't tidy up history to suit your story. You know, respect the history that's established and there's plenty of gap. There's enough gaps in the historical record that there's spaces for you to have your fiction and still not need to rewrite history to make it work. So I take that. So I figure if Hilary Mantel says that, it's probably a good place to start because um, she knows what she's talking about. So, yeah, so I will, if I find something doesn't fit, my story doesn't fit the history, then I will alter the story rather than alter history to fit around for my convenience. Um, and that's one of the constraints I set for myself with this series is that I will always wear history has established something happened on a particular date, somebody was in a particular place, then I will respect that and I will build my, my story around that, which can be quite problematic at times. Um, the first book in the series, City of Vengeance, because it, it was building up to this conspiracy against the Duke, which is all based on real history, aside from the fact that historians couldn't agree what day the attack against the Duke happened, whether it was a Friday night or a Saturday night, because it was either just before the Feast of Epiphany or actually on the Feast of Epiphany, which was the Saturday in this year. Um, so I had to make a decision which one of those I was going to accept as the as the version of history that would work. But while Elder was investigating events, he discovered the conspiracy sort of too soon, unfortunately. Um, so I ended up, I had to take him off the, off the board, as it were, for about 36, 48 hours in the story and keep him occupied elsewhere. So there's a whole subplot where he's um, basically the conspirators arrange for Eldo to go to prison <laughs> and they think he's going to die in there or, you know, basically be kept there forever. That's so uh, that's so tricky, David, isn't it? Because suddenly, and, you know, it comes back to the eternal question of plotting versus pantsing, but say you had a, you had a rough idea of what's happening, right? And mm-hmm. now you've got almost two days to, to account for and because of the nature of your stories, Two days is a chunk of time and a and a chunk yeah. of writing. How did you go about thinking? Oh, he needs to be doing something now. How can I make something naturally happen without it appearing like I've crowbarred in a random subplot that it, like this needs to tie up at the end? Yeah, yeah. Was, uh, you don't want him just to be like busy work. <laughs> um, you don't want him to. Be, there's nothing worse than. Oh, I think it's, it's one of the. Uh, early Harry Potter films and they go in Ron and Ron and Harry go into the forest and they meet all the spiders and then they come out of it. And at the end, Ron literally says, well, that was a waste of time. <laughs> um, and you're just going, which is, you know, in writing terms is known as a signal from Fred where the writer's subconscious leaps forward and tells the writer what has just gone wrong with their story. <laughs> um, and that's a classic signal from Fred. So I was very conscious of not having a signal from Fred sequence that at the end of it, Nothing had changed, nothing had altered, and really we just kept the characters busy for two episodes. Like, for anybody who ever watched the the Kiefer Sutherland TV show 24, and they were desperately trying to fill up 24 hours in the life of the character, so he would just spend three hours. You know, they'd end up with subplots where his daughter was being stalked by a cougar in the mountain for three episodes for no particularly good reason, just because they didn't need to keep her busy for a while or people getting amnesia conveniently for five episodes, those sorts of things. So you want to avoid that sort of, you know, just hand-waving misdirection for its own sake. 
Um, so when I am when I am plotting, I do think, okay, if I do need to do something with a character, how can I do that in a way that is going to be engaging for the reader and credible and it's not going to break suspension of disbelief? You want to maintain that immersion where the reader is swept along by events and is alongside the characters, hopefully. So the first book, uh, there's characters sitting on pews in a church. It was only two years after I'd written it that I discovered they didn't have pews in churches <laughs> at this point in history. And I was like, ugh. Uh, somebody else is eating a tomato stew. Although that's in Bologna, but nonetheless, they certainly didn't have tomatoes in Florence in the period where my book was set. They don't arrive for another two years, apparently. And even then, they thought the tomato was poisonous, and they used to have it as a table decoration for the first few years till somebody thought, oh, Italian cooking and tomatoes, that could go together. So there are moments where errors like that are hopefully caught along the way. I'll notice them, the editor or the copy editor will spot them. Um, and mostly that's fine. Occasional errors do creep through. Um, I just had a discussion last week with my editor about Ritual of Fire because I've called Savonarola a Dominican monk, but he was actually Franciscan, or else I've called him Francis, Franciscan and he was actually Dominican. And that, alas, is in the published hardback, so we're getting that corrected for the paperback. But, yeah, I mean, you... Alas, I can't time travel back to the period, so I can't guarantee to get everything correct, but we certainly try as hard as we can to be accurate as much as possible. Let's talk about language. In I don't know much about uh, Florence in the 16th century, but I, I it's always made out in, in media, in telly and films and stuff, to be this very glorious, very romantic place. How much... Uh, how 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 was trying to bring that to life using words on a page whilst trying to make this a, a rip roaring historical thriller? Yeah, I mean, I didn't. I was conscious. I didn't want it to be like cod Shakespeare dialogue with people for Sufine and hey nonny nonny and they, their way around the streets of Florence. So I didn't want to go down that path, and I wanted people to sound like people because you could write it exactly as people spoke at the time, but it would be alienating, I suspect, for a modern reader. Um, so one of the things that reassured me was I, amongst my 10,000 research books, is one which was translations of letters written by women in uh, Renaissance Italy, one of which is actually a letter that was written by Duke Cosimo's mother, Maria. And um, she was widowed when she was in her mid-20s, um, and her family wanted her to remarry because that's what habitually happened. I mean, women were married off anywhere between the age of 13 and 18, and if they were widowed early on in their lives, as often was the case, they were expected to remarry so that they could be supported by their husband, etc. So her family were busy trying to marry Maria off, and she already had her son, Cosimo. He was only about seven at the time, and she didn't want to remarry. She just wanted to focus on bringing up Cosimo and ensuring he had the best possible chance going forward in life, at which she was ultimately successful. So she wrote a letter to her cousin saying, please don't make me marry this man that the rest of the family wants me to marry. And she's describing this man she doesn't want to marry who's 20 years older than her and he's fat. And his, uh, the, the phrase she used was his breath absolutely reeks. And I was just like, that's such a modern way of talking. And yet this is 500 years ago. So I found that quite reassuring that the concerns of modern people and the concerns of people 500 years in the past are basically the same. Um, so that was reassuring that I could have 
characters talk like relatively normal people. The other thing I do to overcome the language challenge is I will just have uh, an etymology website tab permanently open on my browser. <laughs> so anytime I reach for a word and I start typing, I go, would they have said, I don't know, entrapment or whatever it might be at this? Did they have that word probably in Italy at that point in history? And I operate on the basis if they had it in English, they probably had a version of it in Italian. So I'm, it's fair game for me to use. Um, and then the other thing I do is I deliberately avoid using any kind of modern idiom. So I will replace words or phrases or adages with a sort of period appropriate replacement. So instead of somebody being, oh, that, that guy's a pain in my neck or another part of the anatomy, I will say, oh, he's a stone in my shoe. So I will come up with a, a replacement idiom or adage or saying that sounds period without being actually of the period but it gives that sort of period feel oh how do you feel about that i would feel uh, i would worry i would worry about making them very inauthentic and almost corny well i mean you know hopefully you try and avoid that using your best skill and judgment <laughs> as a writer when you have an editor to say mm, really <laughs> i mean the, the structural edits on on the book um that's coming out next summer my editor was like, okay, I think we've had one too many metaphors about fish in the Arno at this point. And I was like, yeah, okay, fair. Um, so I rewrote it to be something else. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you have to, uh, you know, it, but you don't want to use a phrase that sounds so blatantly modern that it just pops us out of the period. I mean, even character names is sometimes a challenge. For instance, the name Linda was a perfectly valid name for girls. There were girls named Linda in Renaissance Florence. But Linda. it sounds like something out of Birds of a Feather. <laughs> it? Um, so I don't call any female characters in the book Linda because it doesn't sound period appropriate, even though it actually is. It brings us, when, we, when we're discussing uh, idioms and, and language, it brings us to talking about the, the, the rules of writing. Uh, so famously, Stephen King didn't like to use uh, adverbs too much. Uh, everything was fine to be so-and-so said to him. He was fine with that. And I, I mention writing rules because I know that I know that you listen to the show and that you uh, you, you follow uh, kind of writing theory and you're interested in the craft and stuff like that. And because uh, you mentioned earlier on, uh, about uh, your story is leading up to to a burning, right? Or, or no, it starts with a a burning, and yeah. we're, we're straight into it. Very first line of chapter one of Ritual of Fire: Cesare Aldo could still smell flesh burning even from this distance. So yeah. we are straight into it. That is uh, like writing rule one oh one. Get into your uh, the action as late as you can. And I just wondered if there were any other writing rules that you follow that you like to uh work with as you do tell your story um oh many 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 just ingrained in my process now um and i i find them hard to articulate unless i'm having to talk to my creative writing students about it um uh, the word that is unnecessary seven times out of ten you could just cut the word that out of most sentences and the sentence flows better for it. The three times out of 10 when it is necessary, it's absolutely necessary. So it's being able to judge that. Um, I have a, an unfortunate uh, phobia, not phobia, but I, I don't like um, 
what's called widows, and that's not women who don't have husbands anymore. That's at the end of a paragraph to have a paragraph ending. So the last line is only a one word. I will rewrite a paragraph so that it ends in a more shapely fashion and doesn't just have one word hanging around at the bottom on its own, like a Billy No Mate. How often does that uh, happen, David? Sorry? How often does that happen? I'm trying to put into my mind when a paragraph would finish with just one word. It Well, well it doesn't happen a lot in my books um, <laughs> because I go to great lengths to eliminate. Certainly in the manuscript, the irony is that then when I see it printed and obviously I'm working in Times New Roman 12 point double spaced, um, that it's the, then when it's whatever, you know, typeface they use to set the book in, often it will end up with a load of widows in it on the printed version. And I'm just going, no, uh, but that's, that's one of my own private, uh, uh, bugbears. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely with Stephen King said is pretty much an invisible word. Uh, I really don't like characters using character names in dialogue because it's usually unnecessary. If there's only two people in the conversation, once you have established who they are, hopefully the dialogue of each character is distinctive enough from one another that we know what they're saying and who is speaking without having to have them say, well, Dan, as you know, oh, that's interesting, David, what else would you like? Can you tell me? Well, Dan, because it just it's ludicrous. The only people that speak like that are people in Tolstoy novels where they use a character's entire name every time <laughs> they speak of them. <laughs> It's a cultural thing from the period and the place. I'm, I'm, I've been looking up widows as you've been talking, and, and we're talking about the format, right? That's what it is. It's yeah, 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 okay. yeah. it's a format. Thing. Yeah, it's absolutely a format thing. Widows and orphans, and yep. you know what this has done? Uh, it's going to drive me potty now. Whenever I read a, a, any book that has a stray widow or orphan at the end, it's going to drive me right. round the bend. This, this, this one line or a couple of l- words that are just hanging there uselessly—that will drive me round the bend. It's just, it's just it, it offends my 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 eyeballs and it's it's I'm not going to claim to be OCD or anything else because I'm not but that does bug me when I see it on the page my hand twitches for the big red pencil of doom um, I mean the other thing that I'm well I don't write a lot of first person narratives um, because it doesn't tend to be the, the stories I tell tend to be multi-viewpoint and that enables me to tell stories in a different way and do a lot of quick cuts and move from one place to another and cut away over, skip out the dull bits as Elmore Leonard used to say is leave out the bits that readers skip. Um, But yeah, in first person, I've got uh, a slight anathema of first person present tense, which makes a lot of YA hard to read because so much of it is written first person present tense. Um, And that's, that's a philosophical problem that I have. Not that YA writers have, but hey ho. Yeah, it's um, it's very tricky to. I I've been struggling uh, writing a novel recently, and and it it does m- make it simpler is the wrong word, but it, I, I found that if you are struggling, like plonking yourself in it as the character. It does make you see things in a different light, though. So I completely understand why it's done, but I do also get. I think it can be overused. I, I think at moments. Yeah. I mean, uh, the thing with. Well, my argument is, I don't know, The Hunger Games, for example, you know, huge selling book, so it's not like they need my criticism. It's going to make any difference whatsoever. But if you have first-person present tense and a character is running running along and somebody's shooting at them with arrows, I'm like, when are you, when have you got time to be writing this down while you're, while you're trying to stay alive in this 
hellscape of the future. Well, and also, and yeah, also nine times out of ten, it's a slight spoiler because it probably means the person has stayed alive come the end of the story. I know sometimes that's not the case, but yeah. yeah. Uh, well, listen, yeah. Uh, just just lastly, what what happens? What happens next then? Is is Cesare Aldo? Is is uh, they the character that's going to be with you for a long time? I know that you, you were so interested in this period in in Florentine history that it made you focus on it. But is someone that's interested in history? Is there any other periods that you feel like in investigating? There are, there are. Um, there's a, another series I'm thinking about writing. Uh, which is I, I picked up this book of photographs of Paris in the 1920s, but it was by a photographer called, I'm going to say his name wrong, Brassai. Um, and it's photographs of what life was like for sort of ordinary people at night. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's brothels, it's nightclubs, it's sort of uh, the fringes of society. And there was one photo and it showed, at that point in history, they didn't have like uh, a proper sewerage system. Basically, all the big tenement blocks had their own giant septic tanks underneath or beside the building. And they used to go and clean them out at night. Once they were full, they would go and clean them out at night. And being a crime writer, I instantly was like, well, imagine if they were cleaning all of that stuff out and then they'd discover a body inside the tank. That's where they've gotten rid of the corpse. Uh, and that's that and the combination of these photos of sort of behind closed doors inside Paris in the 1920s, I just found fascinating. Um, so I started accumulating a lot of research materials for that. Um, but whether or not I will get to that, I don't know. Um, and then there's another another period I quite like to like, which I'd like to write about, which is one I lived through, which is um, uh, sort of in the countryside in New Zealand in the mid-1980s when I was a cadet reporter my first job. Um and you were sort of you were living in the middle of nowhere uh, in the sticks, as it was called. Uh, meanwhile, I don't know the the space shuttle was blowing up, and the Greenpeace's Rainbow Warrior was blowing up in mm. Auckland Harbour, and all these momentous events are happening elsewhere. Uh, and meanwhile, I was living in a small town covering small news, but there were still weird things that would be happening. I just thought, well, a fictionalized version of that would have a nice sort of New Zealand Gothic feel to it. So I quite fancy that as well, but it's having the time and the, the headspace to do it alongside the Eldo novels, so and working four days a week. And that is it for this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you so much, D.V. Bishop, for coming on the show. Uh, you can find copies of all of those Cesare Aldo books online right now. There is a fourth coming out in a few months, so keep your eyes peeled for that. And you've got that time to get up to speed so you can be ready for the new release. We are sponsored this week by Who Is The Cheese Wire Killer. Brand new podcast which you can add to your feed. I think you'll really like it because you like storytelling, you like writing, and you like podcasts, right? Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? Available for you to listen to now, wherever you get your shows. Next week, back with a brand new episode and a brand new author. In the meantime, support us. Get to patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You can uh, drop me a note on the contact page, writersroutine.com too. And you can drop us a follow on X, because I'm calling it that now, uh, at writers pod over there. And I will see you next week with a brand new episode. Until then, bye. Bye. <laughs>